0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Marching forward in the pouring rain, thousands of people press their point. An urgent message from the streets of Glasgow to the decision makers staying dry inside the climate talks. And at the front of the line, indigenous people from Brazil, Peru, the United States and Canada... Carrying placards demanding their land back, demanding Indigenous rights and climate justice. And yet they aren't at the bargaining table. This week we hear how Indigenous peoples are taking action on climate and why decolonization is essential to keeping 1.5 alive. I'm Laura Lynch and this is What on Earth from Glasgow. A meeting breaks up, people mill about not yet ready to leave each other's company. It's a gathering of Indigenous people, far away from the sight of the power brokers at the climate negotiations. Some wear colourful traditional dress, others wear what's needed to guard against the Glasgow chill. They're here to plot strategy, to promote solidarity, and to learn from each other. One man walks outside with me down a lane that is not always quiet.
2: My name is Edson, Edson Krenak. I'm from Krenak people in Brazil, Vanuiri clan. And I'm an indigenous activist, a writer, and uh, also a teacher.
1: His homeland, Brazil, is thousands of kilometers away from this conference. But Krenak wants to tell me why he's come here, why he thinks coming to the UN climate meeting is crucial to the fight for indigenous rights around the world
2: is affecting primarily indigenous peoples because indigenous peoples depend uh, entirely on the, the nature, is where they live, where is their home, they have their food, their medicine and the water and uh, speaking of water for example is the first time in our history for centuries that in a country so rich of rivers and water we are having water problems in our communities regions are uh, uh, close to Amazon forests to the rainforest we don't find our medicine plants anymore our herbs are disappearing completely without we uh, in front of our our sight, our eyes, because there's no rain enough anymore, there's no animals, plants, uh, uh, birds, uh, bees, they are not visiting us anymore. We cannot interact with them anymore because of the impact of climate change.
1: When you say problems with the water, what, what exactly do you mean? Lack of water, no drinking water?
2: lack of water, no drink water exactly, uh, drought, a lack of uh, rain uh, in areas that we used to have like every year, year, the seasonal rain, sometimes we have now five years without one drop of water we know that the the source of this uh, what is causing it is many places in the world but especially in our own country, because for decades our government, the Brazilian state, they don't demarcate our lands, they don't protect our lands, and with that, without uh, protection of uh, indigenous peoples, without protection of our lands, also the environment, the nature, the biome has no protection, because we are the the last defenders of the, the Mother Earth.
1: The, the the group that you are with, Cultural Survival, it is focused on land rights and self-determination. How is recognizing indigenous rights a climate change solution?
2: Uh, well, I think the, the best way to answer this question is to answer who are the indigenous peoples. We are the, not only defenders of the, the environment, of the forests, the rivers, the animals, the multi-species. We are part of them. And we want now to make all humans to believe that we are part of this planet. The first step to decolonize state policies, our society policies, is to invite indigenous peoples to be part of the the policy-making mechanisms and and, uh, uh, actions. We are being excluded from many conversations the, the state is not inviting indigenous peoples to discuss the best policies we don't have a, as they say a planet b indigenous peoples they come to COP to not with just a message to the state because we know states are hard to listen to our voice but we have a, a message to the entire society we don't want to be alone, uh, uh, working, and defend the planet, but we want allies, we want the media, we want other organizations, civil society, to join us to defend uh, the environment. And the, the goal is to survive is to survive this uh, colonization, new colonization, that is still going on. That is the cause of all this climate catastrophe that we are facing right now. But we are confident. Indigenous peoples, we have survived 500 years of colonization. It was a massive, powerful colonization. They tried to, with using a lot of technology to exterminate us. But we, uh, with our simple ways of life, we survived. We are here fighting uh, because we believe that on our side is nature, on our side is the Mother Earth.
1: So my last question is, we are going to be speaking to a Canadian Indigenous leader who had been to a previous COP Mm -hmm. and is not coming because he doesn't think it's worth the time to come here. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what you think of that.
2: Mm -hmm. I I respect his decision. I, I respect that when i hear my also my my relative from peru saying that his family died defending the forest where they live he has no reason to come here why i go there we are paying with our own lives but their message also was very strong in my heart they say we will die for our forest we will die for this planet that is is a home for all humans and uh, i would like to actually to send a message to this uh, relative, reconsider, we need you here, maybe not to talk to the government, maybe not to change the state or to change the world in a a global scale, but please come, uh, be with us, join us, share your your needs, share your visions, your hopes, uh, also your struggles and this is uh, important i tell this uh, brother to please do not give up we need you and uh, to all indigenous people that are listening to to this uh uh podcast to this uh, show we is the first time in our history that indigenous peoples and in their ans- and their ancestors can gather together in a global scale is a historical we are doing something that Every day we feel like a goose pumps in our arms because we feel that the energy, the power that we are bringing into those discussions is really, is really great. And we, we believe that uh, Mother Earth will be a little bit happier or less sad after this, co- this COP.
1: Thank you so much for speaking to me.
2: Thanks to you. Thanks for this opportunity.
1: Hi. How How are you doing? I'm Renee with Minister (laughs) (laughs) Guy Nice to meet you. Thank you for
0: joining us today. (laughs) Yes. nice to meet you. (laughs) Yes?
1: Yes. Just so you guys know, we'll be letting you in the room soon. If you could just sanitize your hands when you get in. So we
0: should be good to go, not tomorrow.
1: On the outside, but getting in.
3: Pleasure meeting you. I'm Stephen Gilbert. It's good to see you in person. See you again. (laughs) Yes.
1: That's Paul Prosper, the Regional Chief with the Assembly of First Nations representing Newfoundland and Nova Scotia. And he and two colleagues have just arrived for a meeting with Canada's new Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbo. They're inside the so-called campus, where the main action is. Prosper is part of Canada's official delegation, and that's his ticket to access like this.
3: The government of Canada has been uh, quite good in uh, giving ourselves party status at this event, which opens certain doorways, allowing us to participate through uh, the COP.
1: This is Prosper's first time at the UN Climate Summit. It's so big and there's so much happening all the time, it can be a bit bewildering.
3: You know, when you're at a forum like this, you know, it's massive i can sense a certain level of frustration in terms of moving forward so i recognize that um it takes time but i also appreciate the opportunities that we're participating in to sort of move issues to gather amongst ourselves as indigenous people to set an agenda Uh, indigenous people and first nations within canada are not passive victims when it comes to climate change. We're climate leaders and we rely on our traditional teachings, the original instructions given to us by the Creator. For all of his sense of purpose,
1: Prosper knows his ability to effect real change is limited even if he believes indigenous peoples are key to solving the problem.
3: We have values and traditions and customs that can offer a unique First Nation lens to redefine the problems that exist and identify new solutions in line with these teachings.
1: Would you rather be, though, at the negotiating table?
3: Yes, ideally it would be great to be at the negotiating table, um, but there are opportunities that exist for us to at least inform that table. So, yes, it would be great to be right at the table, but, you know, you, you just have to work on creating change the best way you can.
1: For now, that means regular updates from Minister Guilbeault and a chance to put across his own suggestions for Canada's stance at the negotiations. There's also the importance of building coalitions with other Indigenous groups to speak with one strong voice. But Prosper admits he's up against a history of broken promises from Ottawa. And that doesn't make being part of this process any easier.
3: And yes, you know, there are times where that level of trust is challenged. Uh, There are certain positions being taken by government that are are contrary to First Nation views and opinions. So it's always being tested, but at a basic level, you know, there always has to be a mechanism to build that relationship. And so that's what we're doing here, is is to, uh, you know, develop those relationships which have been ongoing even before the Paris Agreement.
0: Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do
4: what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Ariel Durange. I'm a member of the Athabasca Chipewyan First Nation and the Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action.
1: We meet Ariel Durange at the Indigenous Peoples Pavilion, a modest two room kiosk, harder in space they had to negotiate for. Durange is part of Canada's official delegation as well. Unlike Chief Prosper, this isn't her first time at one of these conferences. She's been involved with UN climate talks for more than a decade now, and I begin by asking her if she thinks Indigenous voices are actually being heard.
4: I think that there is an improvement in the visibility of Indigenous peoples, Indigenous voices, um, and Indigenous issues but I don't think that 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 has actually led to substantive changes in the mechanisms for allowing us to have uh, decision-making powers within these spaces. So it feels rather tokenistic and, you know, like it's giving lip service to our issues, but we're still not actually seeing substantive changes to the mechanisms within the UNFCCC processes. And why do you think that is? These systems are fundamentally created for colonial systems. They weren't created for us or for us to succeed within them. And then secondarily, the value systems that drive the UNFCCC process is fundamentally divergent from the indigenous value systems that drive our own communities. Everything from the decision-making processes to what they hold valuable in the discussions and the negotiations. When you say decision-making processes, I would think you're talking about consensus So, you know, there will be those that say that the UN is a consensus-based organization, but those at the table that are coming to consensus are colonial leaders that in many cases don't have the consensus of their constituencies and are responsible for the marginalization, sometimes the violent oppression and murder of their indigenous populations. So how are we supposed to allow those leaders to negotiate on our behalf? This is where the rights of indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples in general come to these forums to advocate and advance both human rights protection measures but also protection for the rights of indigenous communities. Well then given all of that why bother coming here without interventions made by indigenous groups and civil society, we would have already negotiated terms of an agreement that are doing very little to actually reduce emissions, protect human rights, but instead we would be looking at massive trade agreements. The first agreement for for climate change was done in Kyoto and they developed the Clean Development Mechanism where they were looking at ways to trade emissions and carbon offsets how do we determine what the global contributions are going to be since that time it's been perverted into a system that is completely fixated on the economy it's fixated on how do we balance the economy while we save the planet not how do we save the planet and secondarily save the economy they have the situation very backwards and without the interventions of Um, human rights advocates and indigenous rights advocates we would still be in a state where that's where the conversations would be we would not be talking about capping oil and gas production we would not be talking about ending deforestation Uh, instead we would be looking at ways to cook the books by looking for carbon market mechanisms that allow countries to offset emissions
1: in that sense then how do you think the talks are going so far we've heard a number of agreements being announced
4: Yes, there have been sort of like these really big agreements on all of these different pieces from protections of forests to, you know, billions of dollars towards indigenous knowledge and how we integrate it and put things together. Because, again, these agreements are being put forward by, again, countries that are responsible for some of the most atrocious acts of, of violence towards indigenous folks.
1: And so you talked about carbon offsets earlier and they're talking about that here again. Absolutely. What are your concerns about that?
4: So, you know, Article 6 is the last article of the Paris Agreement to be negotiated and agreed upon. And this is the article that outlines the international cooperative mechanisms for determining uh, the global responsibilities and accounting of carbon emissions. So this gets into something called the nationally determined contributions. Every five years, countries are supposed to be like, hey, these are this is how much emissions we're going to contribute to the global emissions portfolio. And they have to stay within that. And so they're saying, OK, how can we offset? So Article 6 is creating an international mechanism for carbon trading. This is a huge concern for the rights of Indigenous peoples, not just in Canada, but internationally, this looks at how we now can talk about sacrifice zones in the north and the so-called protection of areas in the global south, let's say the rainforest. But while that sounds like a good idea, the the communities in the rainforest that have been sold this carbon market mechanism where conservation, they're going to save their lands and territories, are now being told they have to limit their use of their lands and territories. Corporations are buying assets, that's what they're calling them, in the rainforests, in these beautiful biodiverse regions, so that they can offset their operations, so they can get to so-called net zero. That's not net zero. We need real zero. There is the inability of some in the global south to
1: travel to Glasgow because of the pandemic this time around. And that's brought the question of whose voice gets heard here to the forefront. I'm wondering how you reconcile being here
4: when so many others can't. There are so many Indigenous peoples that were not able to make it here because of, you know, the vaccine and the global pandemic. But this is inequitable access to the vaccine. This is an indication of like how we are still seeing um, developing nations, but even more so the Indigenous populations of those developing nations having less access to health and safety measures. Um, And so when we come here, we have to be the voice of so many of those that can't. You know, my organization called for the postponement or cancelling of this COP because of that. And then we also recognize that if we can make it here, we have to speak even louder. We're not here just to talk about Canada. We're here to talk about the fact that there's a global indigenous movement that is saying that we can't afford to continue to debate the merits of how to save the economy. We need to be advancing real solutions that include real reduction in emissions, but also the safeguards for human and Indigenous rights. And we also need to empower Indigenous peoples to have a seat at the table so that we can bring forward our knowledge to ensure that we're moving in the right direction. How long do you have to wait to get a seat at the table? Well, you know, the Local Communities Indigenous Peoples platform is that step in the right direction. That normally science, you know, in policy and government, we talk about science being the the best way to inform policy. And what the challenge has been is we're saying indigenous knowledge needs to be included on par with scientific information and that we need to utilize our knowledges to inform climate policy at the international level. And that trickles down to how is that going to happen at the state level? And this is an important lever for us. So the people within the local communities indigenous peoples platform now have the ears of the UN secretariat, but also they get to sit in rooms and negotiate these terms with state leaders. While it's not in the open plenary around the whole framework of the Paris Agreement, this has given us sort of one measure closer to having recognition as critical agents to driving climate solutions.
1: As an Indigenous person and as a person working in a a capacity here where you feel you're representing other Indigenous people who can't be here, how will you measure the success of this?
4: I think we'll measure the success in this is if we see those safeguard languages included in the negotiations for Article 6, for loss and damages, uh, you know, for gender and, and women's rights. We're going to be seeing the continuation of advocating for indigenous rights languages throughout the negotiations. Um, and then secondarily, how do we move the measure forward from just having a seat in the LSIP to moving us to having more recognition in decision-making powers probably within Canada first because that's where I can advocate for. But then if we set those precedences, we can advocate for developing nations and we have this trickle-down effect. Ariel Durange, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's pretty easy to find time and space to speak with Ariel Durange, Paul Prosper, and Edson Krenak. They're all in Glasgow to make their voices heard. But many other Indigenous people and leaders didn't make the trip. Some could not. Others don't think it's worth the time.
0: My name is Dana Tram, and I am the chief of the Vantukwajin First Nation.
1: He's in Old Crow, Yukon. Chief Tram, hello.
0: Hi there. Thank you for having me.
1: Why did you make the decision to stay at home versus coming to Glasgow?
0: Well, I went to COP25 in Madrid, Spain, And that was a jarring experience. Of course, with a lot of the work we had done in the community and uh, with other First Nations, we have so much to be proud about and and much to share as our indigenous values uh, get realized in federal and regional policies and legislation. Um, But really what I found at COP25 was a tiny little pavilion Uh, far away from all of the other nations and countries who did not visit the Indigenous Pavilion. And it actually, at one point, I introduced my segment to the maybe 15 people that were there. I welcomed them to the reservation, the Indigenous Pavilion Reservation at COP25. It, It was just a lot of the same... Uh, colonial paternalistic um, spaces and uh, regulations and and barriers that we uh, pressed up against that others seem to uh, permeate uh, seamlessly. All of this to say, what really did it for me was the day that I'd seen human rights uh, really get uh, uh, undermined at the negotiation tables in the actualization of the Paris accord. And I looked at this discussion, seeing that human rights were taken off the table, and I saw what this meant for all of the indigenous peoples across the world, who merely want to not just maintain but foment and grow their environments, um, opposed to just you know squeezing them of their resources. And this is really what COP is about. And I saw this leverage being taken away from indigenous peoples and everyone running around in suits with coffee cups and a croissant in their laptops. And it broke my heart. And uh, I looked at my group, completely dejected and despondent. And I told them, I apologized to them. And I said, I I have to leave. And I left the sessions early. But uh, a long story short, I find the powerful discussions that should be happening at the cop tables right in my community. That's where the strength is and I've realized that over cop where I could be educating others, my education, my power, my direction comes from a community 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle that is having the level of integrity of discussions that really should be had at the international tables.
1: Now we heard from someone named Edson Cranach, he's from the Van clan in Brazil and he came to Glasgow. He's thinking it's very important to be here. I asked him about your view of things and while he called you his brother and said he respects your decision, he also wanted you to reconsider because, and these are his exact words, he wants you to share your visions, your hopes and also your struggles with the people here. And I'm wondering what you make of his plea.
0: I I appreciate that, and and, you know, it is important, but at the same time, I don't rely on COP for those conversations, and and I want to be respectful in this as well. Our form of international communications, our form of Indigenous conversation is by affecting the regional uh, frameworks of policies, and something my brother to the south would would recognize is that my people require leadership in our community and within our region. And although I look forward to conversations with all of our brothers and sisters, I think at this time um, uh, in history, leadership is required over politics and action is speaking louder. Than words.
1: You are not here in person, but you are sharing virtually your knowledge and insights about your community's clean energy project. I wonder if you could tell us about what's happening in Old Crow with solar energy.
0: We have an incredible amount of endeavors that have been realized after decades of work, actually. Um, we recently completed a 2,100 bifacial uh, solar array panel and this is on a fixed system of panels facing east and west. And they are delivered through a microgrid system with a battery that can supply our community of 250 people with energy for an hour. And what this is set up for is to displace the diesel generated electricity. Diesel is literally flown to the community of Old Crow and burned since the late 60s. We've now turned them off for the first time in about 50 years. So our solar array project is able to completely shut the diesel generators off, which we're able to accomplish from early March to late September, satisfying 24% of the community's energy needs. But the real key here is, is we have to understand and we have to look at money like it's energy as well. And my community was exporting our fiscal energies to shareholders for a utility. Whereas now we are selling the shareholders' savings on operations and maintenance and transportation of diesel. So we have now unlocked $410,000 a year for the community, which we are using to invigorate even more. Uh, exponential changes through biomass projects and and wind energy. And we've been able to accomplish this with a singular project, uh, which is changing the community.
1: I'm wondering what it was like that first day when, I know generators make a lot of noise, what was it like for you that first day when they were shut off?
0: I remember going outside and just listening as uh, the sun uh, Sean, with its strength in the community. And I can tell you that what really hit me in the heart and mind was as I was listening to the silence, I heard a raven caw from the other side of the village and it rang through. Uh, it, it blew me away. But one of my favorite stories about it is our local community member who works at the generators is, is a real kind of bushman, you know, a real uh, stoic man's man. And a community member told me they were driving by the generators and he came running out waving his arms, which is completely not like him. And they were concerned, so they pulled over and he came up to them with a smile and he said, listen, and there was nothing. And he said, the generators are shut off. And, you know, for a real kind of stoic Bushman to, you know, act like a, a five year old at Christmas, I think says a lot.
1: I can hear the smile on your face as you're recounting that story. I'm wondering if you could pull back from that project, though, Chief, and tell us what is the evidence of climate change that you see around you in Old Crow right now?
0: This is a really important question, and I just really want to say that, you know, I have seen the climate change issue become uh, this objective truth of 6,000 scientists from around the, the world, the greatest interdisciplinary cohesion in scientific history. And many of these instances through our oral history, I mean, our elders often talk about their elders. And one of the most common things I'm hearing from our elders today is, I have never seen this before. And it gets to the kind of spooky things where, for instance, we saw black, or uh, we saw the geese come before the black ducks come. And we have never seen that before. Black ducks always uh, come first. That has changed. The number of birds have dropped. Even the number of insects have dropped. Lakes uh, are draining, and they're starting to drain at a higher frequency. Uh, We're seeing uh, huge bluffs fall, occluding river systems, and actually almost choking them right off. Even in the Yukon, just a couple years ago, we had an entire river that reversed an entire river because of glacial melt, Uh, a glacier gave way and and the whole river reversed its direction. Any direction and anything you begin to try to quantify, we are seeing changes, increases in fires, um, changes in the burning rates of shrubs and foliages, Um, the caribou population migrations are becoming very strange, unpredictable. And a big one that uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about is our salmon populations are dropping like a rock off of a cliff. Um, All of these extremely concerning.
1: That is a very long list. And I'm wondering, you've got the solar project underway, but it sounds like you need a lot more. What else are you planning to do for the community?
0: Now, this may catch people off guard, but I believe now, after all of my time and, and years dedicated to this, I believe the real solution to climate change is community. This needs to be happening in Vancouver, in Toronto, in New York. Communities need to take their power back and really decide amongst themselves, opposed to leaving it up to international negotiators at COP or the next election or even CEOs. Our next steps are about community and making the country of Canada our community. We have a commitment from the federal government to get all rural communities off diesel generation by 2030. I passed the same resolution at the Assembly of First Nations, so now we have mandates. But we need to go farther. Um, I'm going to be calling for Pan-Arctic collaboration for uh, the provinces and territories, as well as the First Nation communities. And this is one of the fundamental principles of nature, as it shows us that uh, nature itself banks on diversity and rewards cooperation. We need to, as a community, invite uh, industry. Uh, We need to invite uh, science, um, invite a lot of our traditional, traditional aspects Um, And the successes are are going to come together. And I think that's a large part of my now philosophy.
1: So, I I mean, you're doing so much in your community to tackle climate crisis. I'm wondering how much does it even matter what happens here in Glasgow in the next few days?
0: I appreciate that. and, And I'm trying to be as respectful as possible with my comments because, don't get me wrong, Glasgow is important, but... I'm not banking on Glasgow for the Hail Mary that's going to shift the Titanic in time that, you know, we just graze the iceberg instead of hitting it head on. Again, the biggest teachings from my people is community. We uplift one another, we strengthen one another through conversations, and we find the solutions. That's how we're able to address um, the, the abyss of climate change. This is not a time for, for weakness. I mean, we should go through that emotion and recognize it. But we have to come from a place of strength. We have to find that in ourselves. We have to find it in our communities and, and grow that. And that comes from the people.
1: Chief Dana Tram, thank you so much for your time.
0: I very much appreciate this opportunity, Laura. And I hope that my words have rung true for some of the listeners out there.
1: That's it for this week. I'm Laura Lynch in Glasgow. Thanks for listening.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.